Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 17, Episode 2 The narrowness of the trail around the southern slopes of Great Fry Up Dale and Gladesdale High Moor made for tricky trekking. The path through the thick heather had become a tight, muddy trench in which it was difficult to retain one's balance. The day brightened somewhat as we struggled along the slippery trough. By lunchtime, the damp shroud of murk lifted, allowing the washed-out disk of the sun to lighten the sky. From then on, visibility rapidly improved, and suddenly we were in the warm sunshine. While stowing our wet weather gear, Hugh emerged from the miasma, as though escaping from an alien dimension. We strode along Glidesdale Ridge in good-humoured camaraderie. The freedom born of wide skies and rolling moorlands lifted our mood and put an extra spring in our step. Gladesdale was like an empty film set awaiting the next contract. The village was deserted and nothing moved. The first pub, the Mitre Tavern, was a padlock redevelopment site for apartments. The second pub, the Moon and Sixpence, would hear no more merry wanderers' songs as its license had been relinquished and the inn reconverted to a country cottage. I was beginning to despair, believing we had entered the only village in Yorkshire that had succumbed to a wowser's sect of self-denial. On the final throw of the dice, we struck it lucky. The door to the Arncliffe Arms was open, and the welcome stranger atmosphere that greeted us belied the pub's dull red brick façade. The interior was ship-shaped, with a large area set aside for diners. The barman was dressed in a spotless choker-collared smock, which immediately gave me the impression he was an underemployed dentist, moonlighting. The white-starched person was in actual fact the publican, relieving the barman for lunch. The publican was also a renowned chef. No sooner had lip-touched tankard than a familiar voice echoed around the room. Arrived just in time, Colleen teased, while scanning the special's menu board, looking for a treat. The village of Gladesdale had succumbed to changing times, the reality of impermanence. Like so many villages, Gladesdale has become a dormitory for people working in the nearby towns. The village is fortunate, however. The one remaining pub has first-rate beer and the best pub grub we ate on the entire journey. To describe the food as pub grub is to do it an injustice. Our lunch of fresh mussels in coriander-flavoured coconut milk was a gastronomic triumph. Peter, Hugh, and I must have favoured feet. Either that, or we'd selected particularly well-fitting boots. Between the three of us, I was the only one to have suffered a blister, and the short-lived discomfort was long forgotten. The two weary trampers, who hobbled into the Arncliffe Arms whilst we were finishing lunch, hadn't fared so well. They were suffering Guantanamo Bay blisters, pure torture, and it showed. The trek from the Lion Inn to Gladesdale was the shortest section we'd done, and so we had time for a little sightseeing in the North Sea fishing port of Whitby. Around the harbour, the centrepiece of the town, Whitby was heaving with people. Shoppers and holidaymakers swarmed everywhere, taking advantage of the warm afternoon sunshine. Even though we'd only spent a few weeks sauntering through the tranquil countryside, I'd acclimatised, and so was overwhelmed by the frantic hustle and bustle of Whitby. My first reaction was to find a place of unhurried stillness, with no traffic or crowds, a place where the air was filled with the scent of crushed herbs and flowers. My aversion to the hullabaloo reminded me of an episode in my grandfather's life. 
He was a manxman and a man of the land. Shortly after World War I, he made a bold decision to seek an adventure, a trip to the mainland. Until then, he had never left the Isle of Man, even though he'd been curious about what mysteries awaited him across the water. He took a steam packet ferry to Liverpool, and disillusioned, returned home the following day. He found the seaport city fascinating, but it wasn't for him. The air tasted of smoke and chemicals, not the heady drift of fresh-cut hay or the sweet comfort of the dairy, which he was used to. The grunginess of Liverpool's white marble statues, stained black as a slave trader's heart, couldn't match the nobility of a mighty sycamore in fresh spring garb. Everywhere a seething mass of men and machinery engaged in what he took to be an insane struggle in a life without cheer. And worst of all, not a tree or blade of grass in sight, just the noise and the churning throng. He'd seen and tasted purgatory, and one glimpse was enough. Never again did he allow his curiosity about the mainland to get the better of him and never again did he crave other than the quiet rewards of island life. A helpful shopkeeper directed us towards a bakery where the best coffee in Whitbury was to be had. Aping airport sniffer dogs, vetting passengers' baggage for drugs, we sniffed the air, hoping to get a fix on the addictive aroma of freshly ground coffee beans. It was a hopeless task. All taste of roasted coffee was subsumed by the spicy waterfront tang of a working port and the seaside whiff of vinegar-laced fish and chips. Then we stumbled upon it. The bakery was busy and crowded. Luckily, we found a vacant table, still covered with used crockery. Peter sat to reserve the table, whilst Colin and I lined up for coffee and cake. Ahead of us in the queue was a grimy eccentric whose bedraggled appearance suggested he may have been a tramp who, like some in Australia, still follow the wallaby track. He grabbed his tray and headed straight for the table where Peter was sitting. Without any acknowledgement of Peter's existence, he crashed down, pushing the dirty plates hard up against Peter's elbow, and immediately set about devouring his chocolate florentine. Peter, too flabbergasted to protest, opted for the path of least resistance and left the bedraggled swagman to his victuals. A little disgruntled and with nowhere to sit, we left the bakery in search of the second best coffee shop in town. Even though Whitby's fishing fleet is much reduced through overfishing and the aftermath of the Icelandic cod wars, the town continues to attract hordes of visitors in search of fresh cod and hake. There can be few towns anywhere in the world that support as many fish and chip shops as Whitby. Competition was fierce, with many claiming awards for the best crispy cod in the country. If the length of queues were any guide, their claims might well be justified. However, there was more to Whitby than battered cod and a belligerent swagman. Bram Stoker shrouded the historic fishing village in an odious gloom of celebrity when he selected Whitby as the seaport for Transylvania's most notorious son to make landfall. Count Dracula was hoist ashore in a shipment of wooden casks filled with earth from the ancestral grave. From Whitby, the dusty cargo was transported to a final resting place close to the lunatic asylum in Purefleet, Essex, a village about 40 miles as the bat flies from the township where the naked chef Jamie Oliver played as a child. 
the merchants of Whitby widely proclaim the Transylvanian connection from souvenir shops stacked high with grotesque Dracula bric-a-brac and multicoloured vampire dentures, fit for all occasions. The endless clatter of retail tills was the signature tune of the world's most notorious bloodsucker. The return trip to Gladesdale took us through Gothland, the rural hamlet transformed into the mythical village of Aidensfield, where Yorkshire Television's successful and long-running series Heartbeat is set. Needless to say, the village is a must on the tourist circuit. The Antlift Arms dinner menu was a splendid thing to behold. However, it fell far short of the special Wild Salmon, thanks to Mr. Mike Green. In view of Glidesdale's close proximity to Aidensfield, it crossed my mind that Mike Green may have been one of several non-diplumes used by the poacher and general ne'er-do-well Claude Jeremiah Greengrass, a one-time regular in the Edensfield Arms, and a heartbeat favourite. The sheer bliss garnered from the first taste of Mr. Green's wild salmon more than justified the long trek from St. Bees. The soft pinkish-red flesh reminded me of the ripe lips of Mondigliani's Red Nude. She oozed succulent relish, stretched out, juicy, aromatic, and inviting, nourishment for each sense. Our serving was as fresh and pure as the open sea, with flavour that transformed the experience of eating into a voyage of discovery navigated by a master chef. Marvellous though the salmon was, I did have qualms eating it. Had the salmon resisted Mr. Green's lure, it may have survived to savour its own coast-to-coast marathon, crossing the Atlantic to the breeding grounds of Greenland. Fortunately, I was able to assuage even the slightest remnant of vegan guilt by adopting an aboriginal respect for game they'd hunted and eaten. As I ate, I thought to myself, Thank you, Mr. Salmon, for feeding us so royally this day. Back at Ashley House, our host and hostess, John and Margaret, were as welcoming and hospitable as their home was comfortable and a restful place to be. They had recently returned from an unforgettable holiday in Melbourne, visiting their son, who worked down under. It crossed my mind how small the world has become, and disturbingly, how long it might remain so. I wondered for how much longer I could justify my annual trips from Australia to walk upon my native soil on the Isle of Man. Vapour trails in the atmosphere may be a beautiful sight to some, however, they come at a truly astronomical, environmental and ecological cost, perhaps an imposition the Earth is no longer able to tolerate. And with that thought, bon oui.